So, a couple of years ago, probably more than that now, five or six, I had this week, and this week was really interesting to me, and I'll try to explain it to you. Monday's my day off, came out, I was going to give one of my daughters, Gabrielle, a ride to preschool, so I'm going to get into my wife's car. I get in there, I cannot find the key. I know we have a spare, so I go back inside, and I find our, we have this like key letter holder thing, and I kind of get it off, and I find the spare key, and I'm thinking, well, that's really good. So I start the car, take off, take her to school, come back. Well, a couple days later, my wife is washing that same vehicle. That's really good. And she's doing whatever she's doing. She's got Elijah, who's really young at this point. He's about two years old, and he's playing around doing his thing. And she didn't realize it when she closed all the doors, he had locked it. So now the spare key is locked inside. Now that's bad, right? So I think maybe there's a second spare. So I go back to that letter opener thing, and I, and I take it off the wall this time, and I, and I dump everything out. I cannot find a spare key. That's bad. But I do know how to break into a vehicle. I've not always been a pastor. And so that's good. So I break into the vehicle and I get the spare key and the other key out of it, all right? And then I go and I hang up that little letter opener thing back. So it's good now. Well, Friday comes around and I take my phone out of my, when I had a phone, I took my phone out of my pocket and I went to put it into that letter opener. But when I hung it back up on there, it has those funny little like, hinges that have to go on the little screws. And if you don't get them right, it's not quite stable. Well, I hadn't put it on there right, and that's bad. So when I put my phone in there, the whole thing came off the wall, crashed down on my phone, broke into a million pieces. So it's done, and that's bad. Well, at that time, my schedule was on that phone. It was, it, it, I had outsourced all that information to my phone. I didn't even think about it. I just looked at my phone in the morning. Uh, this is what I have to do. So Saturday rolls around, and I had forgotten I had a seven o'clock Bible study where I was getting a group of people together and we're gonna talk about some stuff. And so I'm just enjoying the Saturday and it's 7.40 or so when all of a sudden they call my wife's phone because some folk, because they're trying to figure out where I'm at. And they're like, dude, you're missing this thing. I'm like, ah, so that was really bad. So I get in the car, I drive over there really fast. I'm an hour late. I said, I apologize. And, and then I get into what I'm doing. Uh, seems really bad. And then somebody after the entire time came up and said, you know what? It was good that you were late. I said, why? He said, because it reminded me that you're a human and you fail to. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and that's good, <laughs> that's good, right? So the hardest thing for me about that entire event was, who do I blame for all this? <laughs> Is it Elijah? Is it my wife? I just decided to blame Steve Jobs. It's gotta be his fault. It's the iPhone. So that story reminds me that you really don't know if something is good or bad until quite a while later. Was this good that ha happened or was that bad that happened, was, right? You have a meal and you think that was a really good meal until two hours later when you're in the bathroom and you have food poisoning. Not so good of a meal. So very often, you can't really know, was that a good thing that happened or was that a bad thing that happened until there's enough distance between you and that thing to really realize, okay, that wasn't so bad. Today, we're going to read the second half of Matthew 27, and it's going to seem really, really bad. Come back next week, okay? <laughs> I'm just going to sneak preview. Come back for chapter 28.
All right? So, simple chapter. Death, or I should say cross, death, burial. That's the three things remaining in this chapter. Cross, death, burial. Verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. (laughs) And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You, who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. Look what they're admitting right there. The people that are killing Jesus, what they just admit? You saved others. Like, we're, we realized you saved others. I mean, it's just, they're just condemning themselves. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Wow. Have you ever had somebody tell you a story and they just do it too slow? <laughs> like just too much detail? Yes. It's like, hey, I got to tell you something that happened to me. I think it was Monday. No, no it was Tuesday. No, it had to be Tuesday because Tuesday is the day I take out my kitty litter. And I only use Tidy Cat, Ocean Spray Kitty Litter. I tried the Walmart brand once, but it just doesn't clump up right. So I changed to Tidy Cat, and I'll never go back. I really like Tidy Cat. It really, really clumps, and I love Tidy Cat. You're like, stop! Tell me what you need to tell me, for goodness sakes. I'm going to strangle you, right? (laughs) Like, slow. I think verse 32 is that. You have these soldiers that have a job to do. Jesus, at this point, has been flogged. He probably hasn't slept for 40 hours. He had a crown of thorns put on his head, and then a bat used to beat those thorns into his skull. He's done. And so these soldiers are like, ugh, okay. <laughs> we, I've got a schedule to keep here. I've got like four more crucifixions today. We got to hurry this up. And so there's this guy who's probably just trying to be like melting into one of the walls as they're walking by, like, don't notice me. He may be um, of African descent. There's a lot of thought about that because of where he's from. So maybe he sticks out like that. But they walk by, they're looking for somebody to carry the cross, and they grab this guy named Simon. Come here, dude, you're carrying the cross. 
What a bummer that would be, right? Dude, I just wanted to walk to my friend's house. Really? I have to do this? Seems bad. Is it bad for Simon? If you know his story, and if you read the gospel of Mark, here's what Mark says, that they grabbed Simon, who's the father of Rufus and Alexander. Rufus is a guy, not a dog. (laughs) Rufus shows up again in Romans 16. One of Paul's buddies. Hey, I know that guy. I haven't been to Rome yet, but my buddy Rufus, who I knew in Jerusalem, he's over there. Say hello to him. So what happens with Simon? He carries the cross, and somehow in carrying the cross, that event, hard, something he did not want to do, unexpected, difficult, probably would have rather just melted into the wall. Because of all that, all of a sudden, he becomes a believer in Jesus, and his family gets saved. I love that. Each of us, we have events that happen to us. Sometimes just in the the course of life, like, why did this happen to me? It seems so bad. Are you sure? Are you sure it's bad? I was talking with this gal yesterday, and she was saying, I'm just in this desert, and I don't know why I'm in a desert. So I read for her Hosea chapter 2. If you're in a desert, check that chapter out. It's amazing. You know the story of Hosea. Hosea the prophet is told, hey, go marry this prostitute named Gomer. Not normally advice I give to people. (laughs) It's not the Proverbs 31 woman you're looking for. Don't do it. God, though, is saying, I want you to do this because it's a picture of my relationship with you guys, with Israel. And Gomer goes in and she's unfaithful repeatedly to Hosea the prophet over and over and over again. And so then God says, listen, Hosea, here's how I feel now. You know how I feel. And so then he begins to talk about how, what he's going to do with his bride, Israel. And he says, in Hosea chapter 2, he says, I'm going to take her out to the desert. She's been unfaithful to me. She's, she's committed adultery on me. So I'm going to take her out to the desert. Now, when you hear that, you think, well, what's God going to do to her in the desert? Bring the wood, right? No. God says, and I'm going to speak comfortably to her. And I'm going to give her a vineyard there. And it's in the desert she will learn that I'm not her master, but that I am her husband. It's beautiful. It's the opposite. I'm going to take her to a desert, hard, dry time. But my goal is though that, so that she becomes fruitful. She finally gets her vineyard. And even more than that, she finally realizes who I am, that I'm not the bad guy. That I'm not here to squash her, but I'm the faithful one. I'm not her master. I'm her lover. That's what hard times do for us. Hard times are what actually give you and me lasting character. They're the things that change me. Mountains are great for the view. Valleys, it's what makes me into a king. It's what makes you ladies into queens. Simon, very hard, unexpected, oh no, but his family is transformed. Thinks it's bad, turns out to be brilliant. Martin Luther King Jr. gave a speech, a sermon really. You should read it. It's from September of 1963. It was right after, if you know your history, there was a firebombing in a church that killed these four young teenage girls. Just brutal. Brutal. 
is unbelievable. So Martin Luther King comes to that event and he's got to deal with that. And he has this line in there that's brilliant. He says this, God wrings good from evil. You might feel like, man, this is evil right now. I feel like Simon the Cyrene. I'm, I'm sucked into the worst thing ever, the crucifixion of Jesus. God wrings good from evil. He's the only one that can. You might feel like you're in a desert. Listen to the words of Hosea. That's when you become fruitful. That's when you finally really know who God is, his character, his faithfulness, his goodness. So Simon seems bad, turns out really good. And I marveled when I studied through this because verse 35, it just says this. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Isn't that short? Right? They crucified him, took his cash, and went to seven feathers. Whenever you watch a movie about the crucifixion of Jesus, what's the long scene? It's the nails and the spikes and the agony, and right? That's the drama. That's the, wow, we really are going to stretch this, this area out. It's just like five, five words, and they crucified him. And that's it. Now, why is that? Because it was such an ordinary thing 2,000 years ago. It would be like you or me explaining to somebody 2,000 years in the future about going to work, right? We wouldn't be like, okay, here's what I did. I went out to my car. It was 52 degrees. I opened the door. I took the key. I put it into the ignition part. That's a little thing. And I turned it 47 degrees and started to crank the small starter motor. It started to turn the big engine. Uh, the fuel injection system dumped fuel in there. It brought in air at a 14.7 ratio. It began to impress that. A spark plug fired. And then the engine began to start. After that, I let the key go 13 degrees back to the start position. Um, then I pushed in the clutch, which pushed pressure on a cylinder and gave 750 PSI in a line, and then that disengaged the pressure plate from the friction plate and allowed the transmission engine to be separated so I could take the gear lever and put it into first. No. Why? Because everybody knows about driving a car. The reason why it's just one word is because everyone knew about crucifixion. They knew the agony. They'd all witnessed it. It was nothing you, oh, oh yeah, crucifixion. Totally. We get that. Then you have this, this push by the people walking by and by the high priests, and they're saying this stuff to Jesus, right? Like, hey, if you're the son of God, come off that. Hey, if you're really the king, show us by coming down. Do you know why they were doing that? Has anyone here ever heard of trial by ordeal? Who's heard of that? Okay, it's one of the most ancient ideas. So the Code of Hammurabi, which is like this really, really old thing. It's like a, a it, it's just engraved in, in stone. So literally it's old. So on the Code of Hammurabi, they have on there trial by ordeal. Trial by ordeal was this. It's a way that they believe, the ancients believe, they believe this. If you're innocent, the gods will intervene and save you. So they would do crazy things to people just to figure out if they're guilty or innocent. So one of them was called trial by water. So what they would do is they would tie you up, hands uh, and feet together in the fetal position, and then they would toss you into the river. 
If you drowned, you were guilty. (laughs) If you somehow managed to get out, you were innocent. Most people were found guilty. Now, he did it. He died. Right? The other one that I found fascinating was this. They would take a big pottery jar. They would put a ring in the bottom of that pottery jar, and then they would put a king cobra in the jar, And your job to prove your innocence was reach into the jar, get the ring without being bit by the cobra. I think I just, you know, just cut off my head. I'm not even going to do that. I'm not putting my hand in there, bro. It's called trial by ordeal. So these guys, what they're really saying is trial by ordeal. If you're innocent, come off that tree and then we'll believe you. If you're innocent, come down from that cross and then we'll put our faith in you. So they would believe if Jesus came off the cross. And yet we believe because he did not. The greater strength is, I could call 72,000 angels right now, but I'm not because I'm gonna do a work that's gonna change the world, that's gonna renew everything. Seems bad, oh, it's so good. I've been talking to some parents recently about this idea of the good and the bad. Oh, you know, this happened. My daughter did this. My son did that. And I think, I don't think that's so bad. He's 15. He's 16. He's 17. He's still in your home. Better now than when he's 18 and he gets a record for it or whatever. You don't know if that's that bad. It's how you deal with it right now. How do you walk forward with it? Walk forward well with that thing. Learn from it. It's an opportunity to train and raise up. You will only know if it's good or bad quite a ways down the road. That might be the best thing that ever happened to you. Who knows? So here, they keep saying, trial boy ordeal, come on, come off that cross. And Jesus does not. And then, one last point on this, because it just cracks me up. Verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Just like the other dudes are doing, the high priests and the the crowds, come on, dude, come off that cross. It'll prove to us. The two robbers are doing the same thing. Now imagine, I always try to do this when I study the Bible. I try to put myself into the character and imagine like what would be going through my mind. Okay, so imagine this for a second. You are stripped bare, laid on a extremely rough, splintery beam. Spikes are driven through your wrists and driven through your ankles. And then you're hoisted up up and just kind of dropped on those spikes. What would you be thinking at that point? Yeah, I'd be going, ow, does this hurt you like it does me? What are they doing? They're bagging on Jesus. Isn't that crazy? They're bagging on the guy in the middle. Look at you. That's crazy to me. It reminds me of, I have chickens. Chickens have a pecking order. That's where that comes from. There's an alpha hen. She's top. She'll pick on another hen, like back, back, back. And then guess what that other hen will almost always do? Go find a lower order hen and go peck that one. And then that one will go do what? Find the next lower order hen and go pick on that one. It's like you see that right here. 
It's like these two robbers are feeling above Jesus now because we can rail on you, because we can accuse you. You see it with kids so often. It's just the brokenness of our world, Romans 8, 20 says. This, all of creation just groans and travail. This is not the way things are supposed to be. It should not be this way. For us, we're not supposed to be that way. The Bible says this, that we're new creatures. We're new creations. We're a new humanity. The way that we are supposed to be interacting with people is to be diametrically opposed to this. So we had an elders meeting yesterday morning and we got to talking, Steve Clarkson and Dan Vidlack and I, about how inverted our kingdom is now. The first shall be last. The master shall be servant. To lose your life, to save your life, you need to lose your life. Just on and on and on. It's an upside down kingdom. We live in a hope, not in crushing people to climb the corporate ladder. We live in a hope that Jesus Christ is going to transform this world where every single one of his sons and daughters rules and reigns with him. That, it's just an upside down, upside down kingdom. And that's supposed to affect everything that we do, how we interact with people. Jesus doesn't rail back at them. He doesn't peck back. He doesn't find somebody lower than him to peck on. He just takes it. That, that's the new humanity that we're supposed to be. So I just finished this book a couple weeks ago. And it's called, it's a good book, After You Believe, Why Christian Character Really Matters. And I'm reading this book, and the author recounts this church service he went to. He went to and he's a big time dude. And he goes to this church, it's a big church, and, and the pastor's a really important guy. And it's a church of a thousand people. It's a packed out 10 a.m. service, just crazy chaos. And, and while they're there, this church had taken a stance on some issues. So right as this service begins, in parades, these gay activists, and they've got video cameras, and they've got these really kind of uh, fiery signs, and they come storming into this church down the center aisle, and they kind of take over the entire stage, and then two of them just start making out on the stage. So this author's just going my, what's going to happen? Well, the entire congregation for like a minute just watched it. Just, hmm. Hmm. The pastor, after watching it for about a minute, got up, walked over to what looked like the leader, because he had like a, a megaphone, and said, can I talk to you for a second? And they, they, they had this conversation right there on stage. And then right after he finishes this conversation, he walks over to the podium, he goes, um, I've just spoken to our guests. <laughs> I've just spoken to our guests. And we've agreed that um, we'll listen to their case for three minutes. And after three minutes, uh, they'll, they'll leave us. And so the leader got up to the stage and was just like, well, like, I don't really know what to say, but uh, we'll just go. Why? Because they thought there'd be a fight. They thought their video cam cameras would capture something that they could post and say, look how bad those people are. But instead, what'd they get? They were treated with dignity. We're just treated with dignity. Hey, what do you got to say? Go ahead. You got three minutes. I'll give you three months in front of a thousand people. Well, that's not really what I wanted. When we react like this, when we respond like that, oh, it changes everything. That's how we're, that's the new humanity that we're supposed to be. That we've been grafted and brought into this new thing that we don't have to fight you on that. Yeah, yeah, we're not, we're never going to compromise what we believe to be sin or what to believe to be truth, but we're going to still treat you with dignity and still treat you the way that we would want you to treat us. It's brilliant. 
That's what Jesus does here. I'm not getting in the pecking order. I'm not gonna rail on somebody lower than me. I'm not doing any of that. I'll take it. Amazing. And that's the crucifixion. The death of Jesus. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. It works. <laughs> Saying, I can leave my shirt on. Praise God. <laughs> Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. I love that word loud. Because if the cross had completely exhausted Jesus, there's no loud voice. It's Jesus is in control, okay? It's finished, I'm done. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. The Gentiles see what the rest of Israel was blinded to. And there were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. His death. Jesus cries out, and the, the bystanders, hearing it, thought he was crying for Elijah, so, so it's like almost entertainment for them. Let's try to revive him. Let's see if Elijah comes. They're like intrigued with, with hey, this is entertaining. Man, maybe Elijah will show up. This, this tragedy <laughs> turns into their entertainment. Do we do the same thing? What do you do when you go by an accident? Saints pray. I rubberneck. What is going on over there, right? Get your phone out, selfie. <laughs> is there blood? Is somebody dead? It's funny how we respond in that way. So Jesus cries out, makes this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that mean? Martin Luther, 1500 Martin Luther, was said to have gone apart for a long time to try to figure out what that meant and he came back with no answer. What does it mean, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For many, it means this. 
that this moment, Jesus has the sin of the world dumped on him, and the Father can no longer be near the Son, so the Father takes his presence away from the Son. So that's a pretty common way to think about that. I've been pondering this for a while, and I have a different take on it. And I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying here's how I see it. Because I always want to run those ideas through the big story of the Bible. Does God run away from sinful people? Adam and Eve sin in the garden. Does God say, I'm forsaking you? No, what does he do? He rushes down to them and is like, what have you done? I can't believe this. Okay, let me give you the good news. The seed of the woman is coming and he's going to crush the serpent's head. There's hope for you, right? He doesn't forsake Adam and Eve. He comes down speaks to them, comforts them, tells them there's consequences for what they've done. Not forsaken, though. How about Cain? Cain murders his brother. What does God do? I'm forsaking you, Cain. No, he comes down, marks Cain with a mark to protect him so he won't get killed, and then says, here's what's going to happen. Right? Doesn't forsake Cain. David, adultery, lies, um, kills somebody. Does God forsake David? No, he doesn't. He comes with Nathan the prophet and says, you, man, this is really bad, but you're forgiven. And I'm still going to keep my promises to you. Isaiah, man of unclean lips, in God's presence, does God say, I'm forsaking you, Isaiah? No, grabs a coal off the altar and heals and cures that problem of Isaiah and then uses him as his minister. Israel sins against God over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Does God forsake Israel? No. So why would he forsake the son? I don't know. I think maybe that's not quite right. In fact, if you read Psalm 22, which is where this quote comes from, verse 24 says this, and Yahweh will not forsake him. (laughs) Hmm. So what's being said here? Another story that's really important to me in the Old Testament is Genesis 22, where Abraham is told, take Isaac, your son, and sacrifice him. It's a type, it prefigures, no doubt, the crucifixion. So in that type, Genesis 22, Abraham with the knife, Isaac on the altar, which one's God? Some would say both. I would say it's Isaac on the altar, and I'm Abraham with a knife. That's the way I see it. Because Abraham's not a good type of God. He has faith at times, but he's really a scoundrel at other times. Lies about his own wife. (laughs) She's not my wife, she's my sister. Uh, Ends up with Hagar in that whole issue. I think I'm Abraham with a knife because I'm just like Pontius Pilate. I'm trying to wash my hands of hard things. Ah, I just need to get out of this thing. I'm just like Peter with my pride. I'm just like the bullies of the robbers on the both sides. I'm just like the mob with the mob mentality. It's me with the knife that causes the destruction of Jesus. It's me. It's my sin. I have sinned violently into God's creation and all my violent sin and every other person's violent sin is poured out onto Jesus. All right, well, then what is Jesus saying here? Here's what I believe is happening. Jesus is here 
And he looks out, and he sees Mary and Mary and Mary. <laughs> if you want your kid to be used by God, name them Mary. Sees Mary and Mary and Mary standing there, and Jesus does what all, Jesus always does. I want to comfort them. I want to breathe God's word into them. I want to instruct them, and I want to help them. So Jesus quotes Psalm 22.1. Read the psalm. It's a, it's a, it was what rabbis did in the first century. Read that psalm. It'll tell you that this is prophesied. It will tell you exactly what's happening right now. It was a marker. Jesus never refers to the Father as Theos, as he does here. It's always Father, my, my Abba in Aramaic. My Abba, my Abba. This is the only place. Why? Because he's quoting a verse. And it's a marker to say, check that out. You'll find comfort there. That's my take on this verse. You can take it somewhere else if you want to, but that's what I think it is. It's prophecy to comfort those that are in the presence of Jesus. And when he's done with that, he says, I give up. I'm done. I finished my work here. You can chew on that as you want. Right after that happens, the curtain of the temple is torn. The temple was a place you met with God. No longer is it a place now. No longer do we need to travel somewhere to a building or a city or a holy site to be with God. It's back to the Garden of Eden. I'll just be with you. I'll walk with you wherever you're at. You can come meet with me at work, in your car, in creation, fishing, hiking, snowboarding. You can meet with me anywhere. The gate is wide open. The veil has been torn. And then... We have verses 52 and 53. Tombs are open. Saints are resurrected after Jesus' resurrection, and they're walking around Jerusalem. I don't have a file for this one. I'm sorry. I'm just like, I don't know. I mean, what is that? The resurrection of Jesus is so extraordinary that there is a First fruits, if you would, of saints being resurrected. Do they have resurrected bodies then? Do they go with Jesus for eternity? Do they disappear with him? I don't, the text doesn't give us anything. Matthew just says, here's how it was. I mean, you're just, whoa. I'm waiting for the heavenly TiVo. That's what I'm waiting for. Because that one's just wild. We do have, from a historian uh, that wrote it this time, his name is Thallus. He's a Roman historian. He says this, at this time, there was darkness for three hours and there was all these earthquakes. He says in his, it was because of a eclipse of the sun. But we know that's impossible because on Passover, it's a full moon, which means the moon cannot get in front of the sun. It's on the other side. But we have this corroboration of Matthew's story right here. I think this, this whole thing is earth groaning because their king was killed. Now, how does earth groan? I don't know, but Romans 8 says it does. It groans and travails like in childbirth, and right here it just groans. And you've got earthquakes, and you've got darkness, and just uh, crazy stuff happening because the king just died. Hmm. And then it ends, Matthew ends with this like litany of people, right? There's Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and married the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Why does he do that? 
So in college, when I went to seminary, before you start, they give you this, it's multiple pages long. It's on plagiarism. And it's really, really serious. You get caught for plagiarism, you get kicked out of school. So I was like, always worried about like, is that an original thought? Or did I read that like 20 years ago and I just can't remember I read it. And now I think that I really am smart, but it's really something I read. So I was really, really OCD about uh, making sure and citing every source that I thought I could cite, probably oversighting. But I didn't want to get busted. That's what Matthew's doing right here. I'm, I'm going to oversight here. Ask these people. I'm going to give you. This is his references. Here's my references. Because I ran away. I wasn't there. <laughs> right? Matthew took off. So he goes, I talked with these ladies, and they told me this story. This is exactly how it took place. You can go talk to them as well. And then he ends, he ends with, with the big one. And what I love here is all the witnesses, what gender are they? Female. Do you think that's an accident? Mm-mm. It's saying the kingdom's wide open. Women are not second-class citizens. We're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Not male, not female. Not Jew, not Gentile. Not male, not female. It's wide open. Come in. It's awesome. That's the new kingdom. It's the new kingdom. So then he gives his big source. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Here's his big one. All right, we've got the Marys. But this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, um, he would be like a Supreme Court justice. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He is a big wig. It'd be the difference for me saying, hey, this guy named Joe at Walmart told, told me this, or hey, Tim Keller, PhD, told me this. Right? This just carries unbelievable weight. And Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea is kind of a hidden disciple until this point. Why does he come out? Because he loves Jesus. Love is so powerful. Joseph of Arimathea is throwing everything away right here. Throwing away my career. Throwing away my prominence. Throwing away my job in the Sanhedrin thrown away the respect of all my peers. I'm going to be an outcast, but I love Jesus. When you love Jesus, everything else is second best. He loves Jesus. It's brilliant. Then we have this final little play by the high priest. They get their final play in. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter, notice they can't even say his name, <laughs> said, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, 
lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is the last we hear of Pilate. The Coptic church, which is the Egyptian church, which is under the most intense persecution probably in history. Uh, the Islamic Brotherhood is trying to eliminate them today from Egypt. That's where they mostly are. It's brutal. It's terrible. The Coptic church made both Pilate and his wife saints because they believe, and this, this goes back to the 300 AD, that they end up accepting Jesus and walking strong. There's the other side that says, no way, he went and committed suicide and went insane. Which is it? I don't know. I do know you have to do something with Jesus. What are you going to do with Jesus? He's the most sung about, most written about, most argued over individual in history. Every person has to do something with Jesus. What are you going to do? Here's the high priest try to do. We want to secure him inside the tomb. We want to keep this thing in the tomb. Don't let him out. Don't let this, we're done with it now. We've killed it. It's gone. Let's seal it up. Let's keep him in that tomb. We can go on with our life. But they have chapter 28. Good luck keeping Jesus sealed in a tomb. I listened to this podcast and it was billed as this ex-atheist. Her name is Professor Holly Ordway. She's a professor of English. So she was ex-atheist. She's come to faith. And then an ex-Christian blogger named Vanessa James. And Vanessa James had, had at that point, because of her, her atheist blogging, from her standpoint, had a really big following. Um, she was a hyper-charismatic kind of Christian, the, the kind that says, you know, you can be healed of everything. She went to this healing thing when she was a, a young adult. She had asthma. She'd always went with asthma. Um, she went forward. Uh, she believed she was healed from her asthma. The next day she went running. She did not take her inhaler with her. She gets halfway to on the run. She has a massive asthma attack and nearly dies. So it just caused this crisis in her life. Like, you know, was it, is there theology then? Or is it, you know, whatever. So she has this massive kind of crisis. So she starts to blog about that and write about that and just kind of blows up and all these people start responding to her. She says, I'm, I'm finished with Christianity. She joins an atheist church, which is always funny to me. Like, get a hobby, man. Go to the lake, go fishing. <laughs> Why? If Jesus didn't come out of the tomb, get a hobby for crying out loud. I'll give you a fishing rod. Quit being an atheist church. I mean, it's ridiculous. But anyway, she, she does the whole thing. She says she is happy with her life. But between the time she agreed to this, this debate, something happened to her. She said, I woke up one morning, a couple days before, weeks before, whatever it was, this interview, and she said, God was in my room. So I don't know what to call myself right now. She said, my, the rational side of my brain wants to say, no, it was just this trip, but I know what happened to me. You're not gonna keep him sealed in. You're just not. And I hope for you that the book of Matthew has unsealed Jesus for you, because it has for me. Every time I read through the Gospels, it's like I told you about Lucy and Aslan. That Lucy says to Aslan one day, 
My, you've gotten bigger. And Aslan says, no, you have. The more mature we get, the, the, the more we grow, the bigger Jesus is supposed to become. That he is to grow and become more beautiful and more incredible and more marvelous. And I'll tell you, in the past 30 weeks or 35 weeks, Jesus has just become so much more marvelous to me. And I hope the same thing is true of you. Because he unseals himself when we allow him to. Keep allowing him to unseal himself. And he'll blow your world apart. So Father, I thank you for your son Jesus for how magnificent he is. And Father, I ask forgiveness for my own tendency to seal Jesus into a box. This is who, this is who you are. This is what you do. Father, I pray you would continue to blow the seals off the way I view you. And you would grow and become more beautiful and more magnificent to me and to Edgewater. And that we, like Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, would be so moved by you and so in love with you that we would sacrifice anything and everything for your body. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.